0: Health Check. Our Health Check series. This is our second week. And uh, last weekend, we were thinking about this early church. 3,000 people got converted in one day. Wonderful, glorious chaos. And yet, without any infrastructure, any organization that's planned, they are a healthy group of people. They were committed to each other and they were devoted, as we're going to see this weekend, to teaching as well. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 is what we're looking at, and this is what the Bible says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In uh, thinking this week about teaching, I've been pondering uh, and thinking about teachers who impacted me through my life, and I, I, I went all the way back to high school days in 1837 when I was in school, and I, I thought, I brought to my memory some of the teachers who impacted me, frankly, some negatively and, and some positively, like, um, like Mr. Savage. He was appropriately named Mr. Savage. He was kind of mean, and um, uh, he taught French, and it didn't go well. And uh, now the only phrase that I can remember from my French lessons of three years is ou à la gare, which means uh, which way to the railway station. And I've waited my whole life to use this element of my education, but I've never been in France in need of knowing how to get to the railway station. So I've not been able to use it. A few months ago, I was in London and a a group of French students came up to me and they said, uh, bonjour, monsieur, où est la gare? And I'm like, this is it! (laughs) I have waited all these years to utilize this element of my education. Then I realized, I don't know how to answer (laughs) the question and... It's disappointing. What I do when I go to France, um, I, um, I, I, sp- I speak English with a French accent. <laughs> yeah. I'm showing willing, you know. I, Hello. How are you? <laughs> I get that reaction. People look at me like I'm on drugs. French, French didn't go well. Chemistry was hideous, Mr. Foote. Uh, The guy blew up the science lab. He got the mixture wrong and exploded the science lab. That didn't build confidence. I didn't pursue that. Mr. Ruff, I've been trying to track him down, Mr. Ruff. My English teacher, he was fabulous. He taught me that I could write. I was a mediocre student, frankly. And he taught me that I could write. He located a talent. He shaped it. He gave me opportunity and I'd love to find him and, and thank him. He taught, me, he taught me about writing. Mrs. Richardson, she taught me how to live forever. It was religious education classes. By the way, we have that in the UK. And I can go into a, a high school now in the UK, in England, in Britain, and I can completely preach the gospel. Yeah. 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 The only thing, the only thing I can't do is give an invitation. They're not allowed to do that, and an offering probably wouldn't go well either. <laughs> I can invite students to come to a church and make a response. And my religious education teacher—I was not a Christian. I thought Christians were crazy. I think I was slightly in love with her. She was amazing, and she was a pastor's wife as well. And she was kind of like an undercover Kingdom agent. She's with the Lord now. Teaching and teachers made huge impact on me. Last weekend, we saw that the church was devoted. The early church was devoted. This week, we see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had spent three awesome years with Jesus. And I use the word awesome, thoughtfully because I think it can be overused you know the Lego movie got it wrong everybody everything isn't awesome no we overuse the word this pizza is awesome no it's not might be good but a sunset is awesome Uh, a veteran couple who, who walked hand in hand for 50 years that's that's awesome a newborn baby that's awesome a pizza isn't awesome But they spent three awesome years hearing Jesus' teaching, seeing his miracles, watching dead people being raised like Lazarus, previously stinky, and now sitting at the table for supper. Wow! Transfiguration, resurrection. But then, after the resurrection and the resurrection appearances, Jesus spent six weeks presiding over the greatest Bible school in the history of Bible schools. Because he spent six weeks before ascending, and a lot of the time we don't notice this. This is buried at the beginning of the book of Acts. Six weeks teaching those apostles, those disciples. Look at this, Acts 1-3. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's Jesus' main theme. His first sermon was about the kingdom. The parables are windows into what the kingdom is. The kingdom is not just the second coming. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, and that can confuse us. He wrote that for Jewish listeners or readers. The kingdom is coming when Jesus returns, but that's not just it. It's it's more than that. The kingdom of God is simply the reign and rule of God in everything, in all places, with all people. And so the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is yet to fully come in the second coming of Christ. And this was revolutionary teaching. You see, Jesus was teaching the apostles, every area of life needs to come under the authority of his kingship. Christianity makes a terrible hobby. Sometimes, what we can do in our Western civilization is we hear the gospel and we add a religious compartment to our life. That never works, it's kingdom. And not only was this radical revolutionary, but it was dangerous talk as well. Because Herod was known as king of the Jews. And Caesar insisted that everyone declare Caesar is Lord. And here come these Jesus people and they're saying, no, 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 no. It's it's not like that. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. And that placed them in some danger. So Jesus had taught them. But then he commanded them to pass the teaching on. And so in Matthew 28, Jesus himself instructed his disciples to teach obedience to those who had been baptized. And so they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. These 3,000 converts are Jews. They're already conversant with the scriptures which is why Peter quotes from Joel the prophet and from David in his Day of Pentecost sermon. But now there's so much more that they need to know about Jesus, about resurrection, about fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so they give themselves to teaching. A survey was conducted here in America recently by the Lifeway organization, and it was revealed that We Christians, 45% of us, apparently read the Bible once a week. Once a week. And I was thinking about that today and thinking that in history, people were burned at the stake so that we might have the Bible in our own language. It's gone quiet. And this is not intended as a rant. Just read your Bible more. But I think we need to once again embrace the value of the Scriptures. And someone said, Amen. number one, number one, if you're following in the bulletin, number one, teaching and learning is vital for our health. Teaching and learning is vital for our health. Healthy things grow. How do you grow? Well, Scripture can be part of that. Look at First Peter 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. In the third century in Christian history, when you were baptized in water, following baptism, you would experience, you would share bread and wine, communion. Before you did that, you would be given a cup of milk as a symbol to remind you yes, you've been baptized but now grow now through the Word of God. Alistair Smith, an educationalist, makes this simple statement, but it's true. Learning and maturation cannot be separated. If we want to grow, we need to learn. One of the biggest challenges in the Christian church is baby Christians. And I'm not talking about new converts I'm talking about Christians who've been around for a while but still act like babies. Um, I don't know whether you've ever bumped into any of them. You know what babies do? They get upset about things that really aren't very important. He took my toy. Ah! Poof. And there's Christian versions of that. Someone's sitting in my chair. Poof. Ah! are we growing? Scripture helps us to grow. Scripture helps us to know ourselves. Anyone here ever go fishing? Anyone ever go fishing? I, I, I don't. I couldn't catch a cold, but I, you, you, you go fishing and you, you get a bird's nest, all right? You, you get a bird's nest in the fishing line. It all gets, it all gets tangled up. Look at this beautiful artwork here. And you get a knot over here, and you try and sort that out, and you create a knot over here and a knot over there, and you, you mutter something like, oh, praise the Lord, something like that. And, and, and then you get another knot here and another knot here, and you, you mutter again something like, hallelujah, something like that. Uh, that's the inside of most of our heads. I want to suggest that's the inside of pretty much all of our heads. It's all tangled up. In fact, because my artwork is not great... I bought me an illustration. And the dear brother who lent me this this morning, this tangled fishing line, he handed it to me and said, there you go, Pastor Jeff, that'll help you. And when you give it back to me, I want it untangled, please. See you in five years. The Bible can help us untangle what's in our heads and hearts. Look at Hebrews 4. For the Word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's Word can show us us. The great reformer, Martin Luther, uh, he said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. And so, Scripture can help us understand ourselves, but we need to use it rightly. Rightly. You know, not just scan the pages. Anyone, you do a a daily Bible reading course and you get a little bit behind. You know what I'm saying? Some of you just nod and confess, you know, like six months behind. And then suddenly you hear this message. You think, I better catch up. So here's what you do. You scan. On your marks. Get set. 74 chapters. Go. (laughs) Go. At it thank you, Jesus. Not much worth in that. The other thing we can do is play lucky dip with the Bible. You know about that, you know, when you just throw open the Bible. And if you've done that and God was kind to you and spoke to you, I'm not discounting that, but it's not a good practice to treat the Bible like that. And it can go wrong. You've heard the old story this guy wanted a word from the Lord, so he threw open his Bible and put his finger on a verse, and it said, Judas went and hanged himself. It's not a good one, so closed his Bible, threw it open again, and it said, uh, Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> oh, awkward. So he thought uh, he'd throw open the Bible one last time and put his finger on the verse. It said, What thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> Let's treat the Bible rightly. In the right way, rightly, not sure that's good grammar, let's treat it correctly, gives us the right thinking. The Manic Street Preachers, which by the way is a rock band, not a group of enthusiastic evangelists, they have a song, they say, you show me your truth and I'll show you mine. That's classic postmodernist relativism. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And that creates chaos. Tom Wright says, when no attention is given to teaching and to constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. And let's face it, before we move on, that takes discipline. I've just started running again, okay, and I hate it. I hate it. I've had people coming up to me over this weekend, and they love it. And I'm thrilled for them, but I hate it. And I, I've been doing it, and, and, and I, get, I, I get about a mile out, and my mind says, what are you thinking? Why don't you just lie on the ground and order a pizza? It's going to be awesome. Discipline. Secondly, let's look at Jesus the teacher. Jesus the teacher. Education was a big deal in Jesus' day. C.S. Lewis talks about something called chronological snobbery. It's the idea that we are far more sophisticated and intelligent than than those who came before us. And we are wrong. In Jesus' day, not only did education matter, but whole life education mattered. The educational system in Jesus' day was not just about the accumulation of information and the parroting of it, but about wisdom for the whole of life. That's why Jesus never uses the phrase spiritual life. Why? Because in Jewish thinking, the whole of life is intended to be spiritual. Carving your life up in different compartments, that's Greek dualistic thinking. Went to a church one time, and the pastor stood up and he said, this week, He said, I know it's not very spiritual, but this week we've got a golf tournament. And I really didn't like that for for two reasons. Number one, I hate golf. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. But secondly, he was dividing and compartmentalizing life. What do you mean it's not very spiritual? Does that mean that God's really thrilled when you're reading Leviticus, but he's not so happy when you're out having some refueling recreation? It's dualistic. And so the education system in Jesus' day was about equipping people for the whole of life. You may be interested in this. Uh, here's how it worked in Jesus' day. At the age of four to five, you would go to Bet Sefer, the house of the book. At the age of 10, you could go to Bet Talmud, the house of learning, but that was boys only. At the age of 13, Bet Midrash, the house of study. Only the best students went there. And then the cream of that crop at the age of 15 could become a Talmud. And they would follow a rabbi for three years. And one of the primary objectives of following the rabbi was the imitation of the rabbi. You wanted to do what he did and be like him. Some commentators think that's why Peter wanted to walk on water. My rabbi's walking on water. I want to be like him. Let's try this. And Jesus followed that rabbinic tradition. The Apostle Paul, who was a rabbi, he even stands before Herod Agrippa and says, you might want to imitate me. Stunning. That's rabbi talk. He writes to the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, and he says, imitate me. That's rabbi talk. Jesus is even called a rabbi four times in Matthew, four times in Mark, eight times in John. The rabbi's body of teaching was known as their yoke. Their yoke. What does Jesus say, Matthew 11:28. 28? Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. So Jesus was following the rabbinic pattern, but then he shattered it wonderfully. In many ways, but let me just give you two. First of all, he allowed women to assume the posture of disciple. You remember the Mary-Martha story where Martha's really ticked because... Mary's not helping with lunch. And I imagine her in the kitchen crashing pots and pans around and muttering. That story is not just about busyness, it's about radical discipleship because Mary sits at Jesus' feet. That's the posture of a Talmud. She's doing something that normally only men could do. And Jesus approves of that. Not only that, but rabbis, you'd normally approach them to say, can I join your group? And you'd only be allowed if you were the best, one of the best. And Jesus, frankly, turns that upside down. In John 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last So whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. He turns it upside down. He invites them, and frankly, he invites a bunch of nobodies, and he sees their potential. Your name is Peter, but you're going to be now Simon. Excuse me, your name is Simon, but henceforth you're going to be this. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Potential. Do you know this before we move on? God believes in us. He believes in us. Sometimes we wonder, how much do I believe in God? He believes in us, Jesus the teacher. The third thing is this. And by the way, there are five points to this message, but I just need to give you a reason to be cheerful because when I first shaped this message on Monday, there were about 27 points. (laughs) And now I sense great rejoicing in your heart that there was an amendment thirdly be a lifelong learner be a lifelong learner that means being open and teachable do you, do you think you've arrived that you kind of know it all when it comes to your faith I remember wandering around Fort Collins some years ago with a friend uh, from outer state and we came by this house that was for sale are you like me you're not in the market for a house but you see that little plastic box with the de- you can't resist it can you And the person with you says, are you interested in buying a house? No, I'm just nosy. I just want to, you know. So I went over and I pulled out the piece of paper, which must really irritate the residents, all these interested, nosy people who don't want to buy their house but are using their paper. And uh, I said to my friend, look at the price of this. I said, this thing will never sell. Mark my words, it will never sell. At that moment, a car drew up. On the side of the car, there was a realtor sign. A lady got out carrying a sign. She walked by me, the expert, and removed for sale and replaced it with yes. I thought I'd arrived. It's so wonderful when you meet people who are still discovering. This week, I had a 20-minute conversation with a senior member of our team here, and our conversation was all about his excitement about Scripture. He's been a Christian for, I don't know how many years, but fresh insight and excitement about Scripture. And I I won't name him. That would be inappropriate to mention John Cook, but it was so good. (laughs) And then being open and being together in learning. We talked about this last week. But let me remind you, John Wesley said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. And there's something that we can do in learning together that is crucial. The church is created by God to be a context for teaching gifts. Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That happens in church. And it can really happen in small groups. Small group provides the possibility of learning together, interacting together in the journey. An educationalist said this, Jesus' apprentice disciples did learn concepts and beliefs, but also shared emotions, attitudes, dispositions, behaviors, anxieties, uncertainties, hopes, and loyalties. All these were intertwined with certain smells, the taste of bread, the rocky road beneath the feet, the rocking of the boat, the still quiet at night. Learning in this manner would reach more levels of character and consciousness than the linguistic mastery of contemporary schooling. Learning together. I'm giving you a lot of information, but here's something about learning together, small group. Here it is. We learn 10% of what we read, 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see, 50% of what we see and hear, 70% of what we say, 90% of what we say and do. That's why that interaction in a small group environment can be So important. How do you join a small group around here? Get on the Timberline app. You just press one button. They'll all come up. Go to the website. It's easy. If you're not techie, go to guest services. They're standing by ready to help. Number four, we need to go from teaching to learning. From teaching to learning. I'm going to put four words um, up on the screen here or the chart here, the board here whatever the word is here there's numbers of an accumulation of educational theory out out there, but but here's one model that people talk about that there are four types of learners. They, we learn in different ways, and they are activists, reflectors, theorists, and pragmatists now One helpful thing, one helpful exercise is to know how you best learn. Now, I could go through this and we we don't have time, hence the lack of 27 points. But if you'd like to know about learning styles, here's what you do. You can text style, first of all. That's the first step. Text style to that number and that will give you the information that you need about These learning styles. And I want us to hold this slide up so that people can that you can write this down if you'd like. 970-670-7863. So that'll give you information about learning styles. And then um, go to the Timberline app and download it if you haven't got it. And if you'd like, scroll down to poll and let us know your learning style by voting. We'd be interested to see how different learning styles are represented. And if you can't figure it out, it's not a crisis. Don't worry about it. But this could be helpful to you. Well, the last thing is this. Number five, learning how to read the Bible. Learning how to read the Bible. You see, I think we need to understand that the Bible is not like any other book. And we need to come to it with observation carefully, diligently interpreting it, and obviously applying it to our lives. Another thing we might want to do is consider the genre, the genre of what we're reading when we read the Bible. Is it apocalyptic poetic language? Is it metaphor? Sometimes people say, well, I just take it all literally. Really? Taking the Bible literally is not the same as taking it seriously. You're saying, that sounds like liberal talk to me. No, no, we need to understand where there are metaphors. So we read that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That doesn't mean he's a sheep. We read that we should hate our parents. That doesn't mean we should be mean to them. It's a comparison with the love of God and the love of our parents. He's the bread of life, but he's not a loaf. He's the true vine, but he's not a bunch of grapes. And he said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Really? Oregon, one of the early church fathers, took that phrase literally and castrated himself. That was a rough day when he figured out that was a metaphor. (laughs) And the promises, who are they for? Are they conditional? Are they for us? Sometimes we just grab Scripture. There's a book recommendation for you, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible. It's on your outline. Here's another way, just quickly, that might be helpful. We've been doing this this week as a staff team. We had a time uh, together and then independently, Lectio Divina. What's Lectio Divina? It's an ancient way of reading the Bible. You read Lectio, you look for what touches the heart, you listen with the heart. You meditate not just by emptying your mind, you're looking for Jesus in the text. You're thinking about it. You pray. And then you contemplate and apply what you have learned. And of course, don't just believe it, but we need to do it. What was it that Mary, the mother of Jesus, said at that wedding when they ran out of wine? She said, whatever he says to you, believe it. No, she didn't say that. She said, whatever he says to you, do it. Do it. Let's wrap this up with another word from an educationalist. Apprentices listen and watch a master, and they're given small tasks to develop skills and understandings of their own. They're gradually given greater responsibilities and opportunities to try out for themselves. Then they review their experiences with the Master for evaluation and further instruction. As we come to prayer, I wonder what the next step might be for our learning and growing. And as we come to prayer, I wonder if for some of us, we know very obviously that we are doing something right now which is in violation of what he wants. We don't have to pray and fast about it for years. We know that we are living in a pattern that is contrary to what God wants from us. And we're going to take some moments to pray about that together. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. And we thank you for the revelation that comes when we open your word. We thank you that we become aligned with what is true in the midst of so many contrary messages that surround us every day of our lives. We ask you now very Deliberately to show us the next step that we might take in learning and growing. We don't want to add what we've looked at today and simply add it to our belief system. But we invite you, Holy Spirit, to help us. And then, Lord, we want to pray about this issue of doing what you ask us to do and we know we could all do better and we're all fragile and we fail at times but some of us Lord we know already that we are in a pattern of living that is the opposite of what you're asking from us we know it we know it now and we realize that the next few seconds could potentially be life-changing And lead to a better pathway. So help us by your spirit. So we just wait in the quietness. I want every head to be bowed. Every eye to be closed. I want this to be a private moment. And I'd like to ask you. Are you. You know clearly. That you are in a pattern. That is contrary to what God is asking from you. You know it. And I don't need to labor it. I'm going to ask you in a moment to respond, not just to acknowledge that that's the way it is, but because you want it to change and you need his help. And in this private moment, I'm looking around. Many have responded over the course of our weekend. If that's where you find yourself, can I ask you just to slip up your hand and hold it there for a moment, please? Not to shame you in any way, but rather to galvanize a point of decision. You can lower your hands. Thank you. Would you draw close to everyone who's responding, Father? You know what's going on. Your love and your grace and your enabling, they're all available. May this be a moment today that alters the trajectory towards health and good fruit, and a legacy that will be beautiful rather than stained by poor choices. We Thank you for the tenderness of your presence among us. And we give you thanks that we're not in this by ourselves, alone, trying to live principles but your spirit enables us and helps us. Help us to help each other too, we pray. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen.